Good morning, loved ones. Continue our study in Daniel. Today we look at Daniel 5. I'll read the first 12 verses to get us going, and then we'll look at the entire chapter. First, let's open in prayer. Father God, thank you again for your ever-abounding grace, your loving kindness, gospel truth, the biblical history that is before us. I pray that you'll bless our hour. Help us to understand something more of your greatness, your sovereignty, your power, grace, and judgment. Prepare us for worship today, that you would fill the house with worshipers, save souls, and sanctify saints, your saints, your people. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. And then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints were slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet. Because of the words of the king and his nobles, the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you, or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar, let Daniel now be summoned... And he will declare the interpretation. And this ends the reading of God's word for this hour. um, Whether people realize it or not, um, this morning's text is one of the most quoted from out of Scripture, um, a phrase that comes up in common conversations, uh, whether it's in the context of political situations or within conversations of, of sports talk, Uh, with regard to, um, say, an embattled football quarterback who's soon to be benched or has been benched 
or is going to be cut loose, um, we hear them say, I think the handwriting is on the wall. It's something that happens before the end. And though it's in the modern lexicon, I don't know how many people actually know that it comes from the Word of God, and it's from right here in Daniel 5. On the final day of the final king of Babylon. Now, chapter 4 ends, notice verse 37, with these words. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true. His ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now, although much has changed from chapter 4 to chapter 5, as we shall see, one thing has not changed, and that is the message of Daniel. The message of Daniel being God is sovereign over all nations of the world. He sets up kings, he takes down empires as he wills so as to accomplish his decreed purposes. Amen. Someone said amen. Now, when thinking about God's sovereignty, um, we consider his control. We consider his determination. We consider his predetermination. And the fact that whatever is under the whole of heaven, Job 40, verse 11, is mine, says the Lord. If God is not sovereign, he's not God. Amen? But he is God, and because he's sovereign, he expects us to respond in humility. That has not changed from chapter 4 to chapter 5. It hasn't changed to this very day. But what has changed is that King Nebuchadnezzar is no longer ruling Babylon. He ruled for 43 years, this mighty monarch. From the time he was crowned as co-regent of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, Remember, he was a great military chief, Nebuchadnezzar was. So he was crowned as co-regent, and then he ruled for four decades. And by this time, here in chapter 5, he'd been dead for 23 years. So chapter 4 into chapter 5, there's a span of 23 years, and several kings since then have reigned in his place, as we shall see in just a little while. Now, first, I want us to recall, chapter 1 of Daniel marks the beginning of the 70-year captivity of Judah under Babylon. Chapter 5 marks the beginning of the end of that captivity. Chapter 1, we noted the removal of the holy vessels from the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar brought into Babylon and placed into the temple of, of, one, of his, of one of his gods as basically you know, spoils of war. It's very common practice by these ancient rulers. Um, in chapter 5, those vessels reappear, and seeing as we do here, God's judgment upon Babylon, most specifically upon Belshazzar. 
the last king of Babylon. Because of the desecration and the insult heaped upon Almighty God through their improper use. Judgment falls. Now back in chapter 2, in the first dream given to Nebuchadnezzar by Almighty God himself, that dream had predicted the fall of the Babylonian Empire. That it would fall by the judgment of God. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 39 and verse 44, that in his time and according to his way, Babylon will fall. Here in chapter 5 is the record of that judgment. Chapter 2 taught us God's sovereignty over history, whereas chapter 5 demonstrates his sovereignty in action. Chapter 4, we saw that, that God is not pleased with the pride of earthly rulers, making an example of Nebuchadnezzar. He throws him into a spin of insanity for a period of seven times. Now, whether that was seven years or seven is used symbolically as a time of fulfillment, whatever the case, the Lord did it. And then chapter five confirms this truth with regard to, to God humbling the proud and that he will judge for those who do not profit or take heed to the example of Nebuchadnezzar. So notice verse 1, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. So here then, this Belshazzar makes this sudden and unanticipated appearance. He orders this great feast for wives, concubines, a thousand of his nobles, and he's confronted literally by the hand of God. So who is this Belshazzar? Well, notice that he's called Nebuchadnezzar's son in verse 13 and verse 22. It's important that we remember that that term, son or father, um, can mean anyone who's descended from someone. All right? Because we're told in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 27, that Nebuchadnezzar had a son, and his name is Amel Marduk, or evil Merodach. Okay, that was his son who reigned after Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Babylonian chronicles that have been discovered by archaeologists tell us that he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, and he reigned just two years one of those who plotted his death, Neraglaser, ruled and then was succeeded by his own son, Labashi Marduk, who, who was brought down just a few months into his reign by a coup that was led by Nabonidus. He was a rather colorful guy, an eccentric, we read, and he was very unpopular among the, the people because his devotion was to the moon god, Sin, rather than the most popular or traditionally favored Babylonian god, Marduk. 
So he did not reside in Babylon. He resided in another city by the name of Tema. So he lived there in Tema at this time, and in his absence, he appointed his son, Belshazzar, to a position of co-regency placed over the throne in Babylon. That's who Belshazzar is. And if you notice in verse 7, look down there. Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation will be clothed in purple, gold or will be placed around his neck, and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. So Nabonidus was the chief ruler living in Tema. Belshazzar, the second ruler in place of his father, and then Daniel, he, he's promised the third position of power if he can interpret the inscription. So Belshazzar, whose, whose name Bel means protect the king, holds this feast. And some believe that the feast was to boost the morale of the people because at this very moment, the Medes and the Persians have the city of Babylon surrounded. They're under siege. They have been for some time at, at, at this point. This great walled city is under siege. They're at the gates. So this could have been a feast to call on their gods for protection and to boost morale. Could have been both for both reasons. History tells us that the Babylonians were not overly concerned with being surrounded by these troops. Okay, why? Well, history tells us that they believed their city was impregnable. So they had no real, real fear here. The walls of Babylon were so wide that three chariots side by side could pass. That's how wide they were. It was an incredible city. So wide and so strong that no force, no battering ram could possibly penetrate the walls of great Babylon. And also ancient writers describe for us that within the city they grew all their own produce so they had stored up 10 years of food within the city. Water wasn't a problem because the Euphrates ran into and through the city. Euphrates River. So that wasn't a problem. Usually when you overtake a city, you siege the city, you starve them out. They had no fear. They felt secure. But as we shall see, there is no people, place, city, or, or military fortress that is impregnable to the judgments of Almighty God. If he says he's going to bring you down, he's going to bring you down. So the walls of Babylon are nothing but dust upon the scales to Almighty God. So, so here they are in the midst of a drunken feast. And during this feast, they praise, notice, their false gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They call for the vessels of gold and silver taken out of the one true God's temple in Jerusalem 60-some years earlier. And this feast 
This order of these vessels is a deliberate affront to Yahweh, the one true God. This is sacrilege on display. Belshazzar. Honoring their false gods, and in the midst midst of all the drunken revelry, uh, a startling event occurs when swiftly, suddenly, (laughs) verse 5, Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. The king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale. You think? His thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack. His knees began to knock together. So he's, he's terrified. He looks faint. He be, you talk about sobering up. So Daniel here, although he's affirming that the man is too, too rattled to even stand, verse 6 really is politely describing for us that this last Babylonian king literally soiled himself in the presence of Yahweh's hand. The text literally reads, the knots of his loins were loosed. I can understand this. So in verses 7 to 9, since Yahweh wrote the words, whether he did it or whether an angel did it, whatever it was, this is God. This is the hand of Almighty God who writes these words. And since he writes the words, only a prophet of Yahweh can possibly interpret these words. So here this cocky, drunken, monarch who's mocking Yahweh, praising his false gods with these vessels sanctified for the one true God, set apart for use in his temple, um, is no longer so brash. He's He's terrified. The party's over, to say the least. And the Persians are about to enter and put the sword to this king. He dies this night. But first, the queen appears. Notice, we're not told which queen. You know, is this the wife of Belshazzar? We're not told. Is this the queen mother or is this the queen grandmother? One of the wives of Nebuchadnezzar. He probably would have married younger women. So by this time... Who knows, she's still, she's still around and, and she enters with wisdom and courage. But she does, we see, still exercise some level of authority. She has some level of influence within the court. She enters in. She's not part of the party. She comes from outside of the party. There are other wives there. There are concubines there. So here that she is brave, she's wise, she has enough influence here to come in and address the king directly and calls him to, to remember some very important things. She well remembers Daniel and speaks highly of him knowing that he can help. Now Daniel by this time seems to have been forgotten by Belshazzar and his court. I don't know what he's been doing for 23 years. We're not told, but we know that he's upward of 80 years old, so 
Maybe he's been golfing in those retirement years. So he's an old man, Daniel. And he summoned immediately, verse 13, Daniel was then brought in. And here again we see the mighty of the world dependent upon the very people they conquered for wisdom. This Judean. And you know, God often uses the meek and the powerless and even the subjugated for the sake of granting wisdom to a lost and dying world. Amen? And here he is. Those who think they're mighty, anyways. We need to keep this in mind and and pray that the Lord might use us to speak wisdom to those who think they're so mighty. God has, after all, called the foolish things of the world to, to, to confound the wise. Verse 16. I have personally heard about you, that you are able to give the interpretation and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple, wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Here's an old, wise man of God. Keep it. Now, in verses 18 and 19, Daniel, he goes on to describe the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And notice the description was almost godlike. This is how, when you read this, this is how God describes himself. I am he who makes alive. I am he who kills. I am he who can look at the proud and humble him. Deuteronomy 39. So Nebuchadnezzar, having conquered the known world, building this incredible city, he had greatness, he had glory, and he had majesty. All of which, by the way, was given to him by the Most High God. Nothing we have. There's nothing we have. There's no no ability we have. There's no gifts and talents we have that have not been given to us by Almighty God. So don't prostitute them. What's Belshazzar's claim to fame? It's right here. It's throwing a party. Ooh. Ooh. That's all he's known for. He's known for his folly. And yet he's even prouder than his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, who actually was mighty. He he, he had greatness. He had glory. Belshazzar's nothing. And he had not learned from the folly of his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, that God spun into insanity for a period of seven times. But again, as we learned last time, some people are so proud they can't see God because all they do is look down and around. They never look up. Blind. So here then, the, guilt, the, the, um, the king is guilty of a crime. He's guilty. 
and we see a sentence pronounced against the man guilty of the crime, and then finally we see his destruction. Verses 22 and 23. You, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. That is, with regard to his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 21, being driven away from mankind, his heart was made like that of, his, of a beast, his dwelling place was with the wild donkey, he was giving, giving grass to eat like cattle. He lived like an animal, and you did not learn the lesson. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are all your life, breath, and all your ways, you have not glorified. You see the charge? Self-exaltation, idolatry, refusal to worship and honor God. You know, the Old Testament teaches us that God judges nations for their sins. That's clear, amen? That is the sins of their rulers. Okay, now follow me on this. We often think of Old Testament prophets, and rightfully so, of those who predicted judgment upon Israel. That is their idolatry. We would agree with that, amen? Yes. And indeed, that was the primary focus of their ministry. However, if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, you know that those prophets went beyond the bounds of Israel. Preaching God's doom and God's judgment over the nations, all of whom are accountable before God. Go home today, if you want some good reading, and read Jeremiah 50 and 51, which details the judgment that would fall upon Babylon before Judah was ever taken into captivity. It's amazing how he would judge them. The fact that God is absolutely sovereign and he uses Babylon for his purposes, a wicked nation that is, to judge his own people. And remember, that was Habakkuk's problem. The prophet Habakkuk, he said, God, how can you use these wicked, vile, idol-worshiping people to judge your people? And what does God answer? I'll do as I please. And when I'm done with Babylon, when I'm done using Babylon to judge my people, I'm going to judge them too. You got a problem with that? Says God in the modern vernacular, right? As a side note, just because our nation, America, has experienced military success in battles in the past, and we have, amen? That is not a direct indication of God's blessing upon America. 
You hear what I'm saying? Babylon was used by God as a victorious, conquering kingdom, but it wasn't because he was blessing them. He was using them as the true sovereign. He's true sovereign, not Nebuchadnezzar. He's sovereign, but he's not the true sovereign. He was using them for his purposes in the world. And what were they? Wicked idolaters. So we mustn't draw false comfort in saying, well, God must be on our side here in America. Um, He must be blessing us. Um, Look at all that we're doing. After all, it's God, guns, guts, and country. Amen? (laughs) Because he may just be using us as a rod of his anger against other wicked nations and when he's done using us he'll judge us as well so here then this pagan okay this pagan king commits a great crime what is it it's a violation of God's law commandment one in commandment two of the Decalogue. Don't miss this. Here is a Gentile king convicted by God of a crime in Babylon, a non-Jewish king called to account for his failure to honor God as God, as king, judged, a violation of the first commandment. The context in which he failed to uphold that law, was public. As the king, he publicly dishonors Almighty God in this act here on this night. And he will give an account. So notice, it wasn't only ancient Israel that was required to uphold the first and second commandment. So was this ancient Babylonian king as well. You see this? Now, I say this because one of the arguments we hear today about obedience to God, obedience to the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, is that it only applied to Israel and her kings. You ever heard that? If anyone has ever handed you a book, by the way, by one John Resinger, talking about New Covenant theology, that error is basically the launching point of his argument. And that argument is antithetical to what we see in Daniel and all that he has been teaching us, which applies to Babylonian kings. It applies, therefore, to all kings, my friends. The book of Daniel, did you notice, treats Belshazzar as the covenant breaker, and he's not Hebrew. He's not a recipient of the covenants of promise, yet I'll tell you this, all mankind has an obligation to our creator to honor him as who he is. 
almighty God, creator of all. And Belshazzar did not honor his creator, so the creator judges him. Think of Psalm 2. Old Covenant, written during the time of the Old Covenant. What does it say? It tells us all kings of the earth are to be wise, they are to show discernment, and they are to take warning and worship the Lord Yahweh with reverence. Any other form of worship is idolatry. And how much more now, since God has exalted his son, Jesus, the Christ, to the throne and has put him in office for the express, expressed purpose, as you read Psalm 2, of putting down rebellious what? Nations. He judges the nations. What do we read? Therefore, kings, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish. Kings, nations, Gentiles, when that was written during the time of the old covenant. His wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, there's no separation between the sphere of Israel's kings and the kings of the nations. And in modern terms, there is no sphere of separation between church and state in the eyes of God. Can I get a witness? So, we preach refuge that is found in God, and that comes by way of preaching the gospel, the glorious gospel. Um, his church is a means to his end in doing that, bringing about conversion, bringing about life, bringing about salvation, but for those who resist, he brings about judgment. Upon the proud and rebellious who do not bow. So, King, verse 22, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this about your forefather, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking. This is a drunken stupor, this is evil. And you're worshiping false gods. But the God in whose hand and your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. And then there's this supernatural manifestation of the hand of God and disembodied writing on the wall, and it's opposite the lamp, so light illumines this, this wall. They all see this. He sees this. He comes undone. And in it, the writing on the wall, a connection is being made for us. And that is a connection, a, a connection with regard to the giving of God's law in Exodus. In Exodus 31.18 and Deuteronomy 9.10, 
right, in the midst of fire and earthquakes and trembling, thundering, when God gave the two tablets of testimony, when God gave the the tablets of stone, they were written with the finger of God. Tablets placed as they were in the tent of testimony. Testimony. You cannot miss this connection, beloved. Judgment against the man who would break it, the law of God, to worship the one true God, the same finger writes upon the wall. Now, when we jump forward to Revelation chapter 15, we're shown the judgment of God upon the, upon the nations, thank you, the nations, and what do you suppose appears in the vision given to John? The tabernacle of testimony that held the testimony of God's law written with the finger of God and from out of that tabernacle in the vision come seven angels with seven plagues pouring out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth that is upon the nations. See all the connecting points here? In Revelation 16, it's the same scene. We read this. There were flashes of lightning and sounds of thunder and peals of thunder. Flashes of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Don't miss the connections with the finger of God and the handwriting on the wall. That's the king's crime. Belshazzar. And God, who writes the law with his finger, writes the writ of condemnation as well for all who break it. All who break it. That's what takes place here. So, there's his crime. Notice, the sentence is pronounced. Many, many tekel you farsen, which basically says numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Farsen is the plural of peres, to mean, meaning to break or to dissolve, actually. I like dissolve. So, it's Babylon's, time is fulfilled, its end has come, God's purposes for Babylon, they're all fulfilled. The rise of Babylon, fulfilled. Its days, numbered, fulfilled. You have been weighed and you fall short. So therefore, the weight of justice falls upon you and you are condemned. What was the weight? What was the weight God used in the balance to this Gentile nation? What's the weight? 
It's his law. It's his law, his standard. All nations are judged by God's law, summarized, summarized on the tablets of stone, the Decalogue. You love God perfectly, love people perfectly, or you're condemned. And every human being, by the way, will be judged by God's scale, his law. On one side, you have the law of God. On the other side, you have your life. The picture scales. And guess what? God's law wins. Anyone who has not kept every commandment of God perfectly, loving God, loving neighbor, defined in the Decalogue, its weight will fall and judgment will come upon us. The only hope of escape is the one who balances the scales of justice, i.e., Jesus the Christ, son of the living God, the one who condescended, who upheld the law, fulfilled the law, died, was buried, raised again, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, will see his glorious ascension defined for us when we get to Daniel 7, unto whom all power and authority has been given as the risen God man. He's the only way of escape. Jesus Christ standing on our behalf is the perfect law keeper, our redeemer, who died for our sins, kept the law for our righteousness, and was raised for our justification. If Nebuchadnezzar's in heaven... It's because of him. Not Nebuchadnezzar, great and mighty, but Jesus, great and mighty. The true conquering king. Belshazzar doesn't seem as though he's there. He's judged in his sin and likely perishes forever. I don't know. You'll find out when you get there. So Perez, Babylon was dissolved. Babylon was destroyed, broken by God's righteous judgment. And that truth applies to each and every civil community thereafter. Make no mistake about it, friends. Amen? Notice verses 29 to 31. Then Belshazzar gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck. True to his word there, isn't he? And issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now, Darius, also believed to be Cyrus, and we'll look more into that next week. I'll explain a couple differences of opinion with, with regard to that. Um, I believe it's just um, a title for Cyrus. And if you notice, he is the only person in Daniel, the only person whose age is mentioned. Why? It's a reminder for Daniel's audience that Darius was born at the height of Babylonian power, 601 BC, okay? 601, 
minus 62, his age, equals October 539 BC. The night Babylon falls. And now the Babylonian kingdom, as prophesied, given by way of the dream of the great image, the colossal image given to Daniel, has been fulfilled. It is now part of the Persian Empire. It's remarkable. Now, this matters much to to Jews in exile here because this information reminds them that their time of exile, 70 years, is almost over. So to close, think about this. Thinking that their walls were impregnable. Thinking. Cyrus and his army, Darius, didn't need to go through the wall or over the wall. We're told that they diverted the flow of the, of the Euphrates, lowering its level and moving it from its course, and they went in under the walls and took over. God is faithful to his word. Amen? We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for our time. May it humble us. May we humble ourselves continually before you. Almighty God, we praise you for Jesus, the one who balances the scales. In Jesus' name, amen.